Last week, we asked a question in our service, and that question was, who are you? And we said, really. Whoops, back up here. There we go. Who are you really? And as we looked at that, we saw that our identity must be in Christ because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. If you indeed are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is this remarkable thing that he has done by God's grace that he is in you and you are in him. We said we are hidden in Christ. We have the protection, but also he lives his life through us. And so this, this identity in Christ is what we are about. That we are, as Christians, must remember and recall this. And today, we're going to ask the question, why? But before we do that, do that let's bow and ask God to help on our day today. Gracious God, by your mercy and by your grace, we are here today. No other reason but that you have brought us here. And you have something from your word for us. And so I pray that I would be able to communicate it clearly. And that by your grace, your word would be sufficient and be strong and clear in our hearts and lives. But Father, we bow our hearts to you that you might use all of it. And Father, we are in conflict often because of life and the things that come our way. So I pray that we would understand why we are here, what we are about, and that we would glorify you through all. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There's a story told of a very wealthy man. A man that had more than he could almost count. He was really blessed in everything. He was successful in business. Uh, The people around him uh, thought highly of him. He was well regarded. He was respected by his peers, not only because of his business acumen and his his understanding of all things financial, but also because of how he lived. He was respected because of his family. He had a beautiful family, um, seemingly a wonderful wife, great kids. And he really was sitting at the pinnacle of everything that you and I would think that we need to be happy. And he was happy. And he was even said of him that he was a man who feared God and worshipped God. And so in business and family in in worship, in, in, in spiritual matters, this one was, was where we think we all ought to be. And while he enjoyed this, it did not last. Suddenly, disaster fell upon him. His business was destroyed. His employees killed. It was a, 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 a very tragic and dramatic thing. All of his holdings were erased and taken over, and he had nothing financially. And yet... How he responded was, was great. And then not long after that, in a tragic accident, all of his children were killed. Every single one of them. And grief and shock poured over him. The grief was just overwhelmingly, but yet he remained faithful to God. And then he himself became ill. While everything else was outside of him, now he himself was in great pain. So here he was, destitute in great pain, without his children, unable to, in our terminology, afford medical care. 
And still this man would not turn against God. So much so that at one point his wife turns to him and says, Why are you still in integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? If you've read any of the scripture, that man was Job. And if you've read the book of Job, you see those who come to him and his friends try to encourage him and then try to uh, correct him. And you finally see Job come and realize that he had pride, but realize that his hope is only in God. I know that I, but my Redeemer lives, and I will see him in that last day, that latter day. But you wonder, through the story of Job, how this man, with such dramatic injury, with such painful loss, with such a withdrawing of everything that he would hold dear, how he could still trust God. Why did he do so? Why was it that this man continued in faithfulness to God? Integrity of life. You know, God was confident that Job would follow him. Not because of, like Satan said, that uh, God had given him everything, or... The second time, well, I haven't touched his body yet. God was confident that Job would trust and follow him. And so God allowed the testing. Why is it that we seem, it seems that often when we are living right, when we are following God, testing comes. And sometimes we see people who name the name of Christ and things are going well for them. It doesn't seem that God has reached out and placed a little difficulty in their lives. And those who follow God and are experiencing difficulty are are tempted to say, why am I doing this? What is my motivation? Should I just give up? Because he seems or she seems to be getting away with everything and they have a comfortable life. What is it at the root of a believer that drives him and her to live in such a way that honors and pleases God no matter what comes their way? What is the motivation? This morning, I'm asking the question, why? And when I ask the question, why, I say, what motivates you to do what you do? Why is it that if you're a believer, and today I'm speaking primarily to those who name the name of Christ, If you're here without Christ, I'm so glad you're here. Hopefully, it'll give you an insight about how we are called to live. And we'll just get this little disclaimer. We don't always do a perfect job. We're not always like Job, who endures great difficulty and, and still trusts God. But the question is, what motivates us? And if you're not a follower of Christ and you're here today, you may want to think about this too. What motivates you to do what you do? Is it because of success? Do I do ambition? What is it? Why do you do what you do? What motivates you? You see, it's interesting. When Christ, when Christ spoke on earth, when he was on earth, it was a very much a binary choice. It was a one or zero. He said, if any man would come after me, let me put it up on the screen for you, Mark. And notice he's summoning the crowd, okay, and the disciples. So this is, yeah, the 12 that followed him. But this is everybody that's hanging around. 
And he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, now Jesus, wait a second. Okay, now when you think cross, don't think of some nice little necklace here, you know, gold or silver pendant, or you know, if you're really rustic wood, that you put it on a necklace. This is an instrument of death, the instrument of your death in, in, his, in his time. Let him deny himself, take up his instrument of death, and follow me. Whoever, excuse me, wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Let that sink in a minute. If you seek after your own life, you will lose it. If you seek after the Gospel in Christ's sake, life will be saved. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? But what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Is it a matter of money? Is it a matter of of power or prestige? See, Christ offered a very stark choice. Follow me. Not follow me and I'll give you things. Not follow me and I'll give you food like you did the 5,000, the 4,000. Not follow me and I will heal you and make it all right and I'll make you wonderful people. Follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. So from the very beginning of his ministry, he had this stark choice. Understand he was dealing like we are today with very religious people who are following him. Who are caught up with just doing things to be seen and and having a good outward exterior. Wearing the right clothes, doing the right things so people would, would think well of them. And Jesus said, this is not the choice I'm asking you to make. I'm asking you to... Choose life with me. And it may mean death on earth. It was, Jesus, that's a little, that's a little strong. I mean, how do I motivate myself to, to choose a choice like that? And it's by the grace of God as he calls us to himself. But something odd happens when we get to the other side of that. We're a follower of Christ now, and in our context of our Western civilization, we have it pretty easy. Yeah, there are things going to be hard. And if nothing else, the curse of sin has brought pain and disease. But there are also family situations. There, There are other situations that cause great turmoil in our lives. And sometimes we're even, people say mean things about us because we follow Christ. And we shrug them off because we understand that those who are giving their lives for the cause of Christ every day. But what motivates us? You know, motivations are funny things. Um, Sometimes we are confused in our motivation. We do something because we think we're doing it because of this, and really in the back of our mind it's, Maybe it's pride, or maybe it's something else. So to really dig down to the motivations of why we are who we are, and why we do what we do, we need to go to Scripture. And see, for the believer, what should my motivation, what should your motivation be for your why of life? As a follower of Christ, what should it be? And and maybe this is the wrong word, but I want to say three directives to help shape our why. Let me give you three directives from Scripture New Testament primarily, 
three directives or a three, three commands in some ways that God uses to shape our why. Things that are important. Number one, love God, love others. Love God, love others. Matthew 21, 37 through 40. So in this passage, um, as uh, he doesn't just bring this out and say this, but a, a man came to him, a lawyer. Um, this is the one who's, who's learned it in the law of God, law of Moses, and a member of the Pharisees. And so they were trying to trip up Jesus. And he said, teacher, which is the great, which is the great commandment in the law? So, so which one? There's ten main commandments. So which one is the most important? Trying to see if he had just give a really bad answer. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. But he didn't stop there. And we understand um, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one God. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. Okay? So this is from, they would understand from their law, from what Moses had given to them. So, He's giving them this greatest commandment, but then he says, the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Love God, love others. See, what God was, was setting out, what Christ was setting out for us as God, and if you look at the, old, uh, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, they, they loosely fall, those commandments that relate to God and the commandments that relate to men, how we interact with men. He said, love God and love others. So Stacey, what does that have to do with your why? A lot of times we can really easily settle the question of why will we do what we do if we make sure we're doing it because we love God. The why of my life, the motivations of the choices that I make, Am I doing this because I love God? If I love God, then I'll make a choice, a certain choice. If I love those around me that God has placed in my life, whether they're lovely or not, I'll make a choice because God commands me to love others. And so as I make my choices of what motivates me, I have these, this principle of loving God and loving others that motivates the why of what I do of the choices that I make in life. It's one of the directives that helps me and helps you as a believer choose what is right for your life by God's grace. Loving God, loving others. You say, well, that's, that's pretty simple. I've heard that, and I've seen that. But putting into practice sometimes is not as easy a thing. And so we ask ourselves, is this an opportunity, this choice that I need to make, give me an opportunity to show my love for God, to Him, not for anybody else, or to show love to other people. Very simply. Because if I'm identified with Christ, I am in Christ, then the why of what I do must be wrapped up in who God is, and my love for God, and my love for other people's. Other people. But secondly, Christ gave another commandment. And as the next clue Christ gave was, uh, is just before He ascends to heaven, his disciples were there. And as he 
is speaking to them one of the last times. So Jesus came up and spoke to the disciples. And spoke to them and said, All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our second directive is, Will this choice that I make help me in this that I've been commanded? See, this command was not just for the 11 right there, whether or not the, the 12th was already elected or nominated then and, and brought in to replace Judas. This commandment reaches to everyone who's a follower of Christ to go and make disciples. And we have contextually placed it in our, our congregation here as reaching souls and building lives together in love. But the choice that you make has to be wrapped up. Number one, love God, love others. Number two, will this choice that I make, the why, is this, the motivation of the choice because of my desire to make disciples as God has commanded me to? Will it help me in this opportunity to reach souls and build lives? Sometimes we make a job choice or a school choice or a neighborhood choice where we live for the opportunity to reach people. And show them Christ. To love them and interact with them. You say, I would make a choice for that, yes. But I'm not vocationally called, you might say. That's okay. We are all called to this goal of of reaching disciples, making disciples. It really is the second thing that influences our why. You may be in an uncomfortable spot. You may have been placed in a, in, a, in a situation that is whew, overwhelming. You don't know how to respond to this. And you love God, and you love others, and you understand that maybe you are just in that situation because of this. The people around me need Jesus, and you need to love them. You might be preferred to work somewhere else, to go somewhere else, to meet another family. Um, But the opportunity to minister the gospel, the Great Commission, compels us. Compels us to reach souls. See, every opportunity and every test is a platform to exhibit God's grace. Everything. And we'll tease, oh, it's the flat tire, or or whatever it is. But it's, it's the... It's the rub at work. It's the interpersonal conflicts that we have with people. It could be pain. It could be suffering. It could be illness. Those are always opportunities to show God's grace to others, to point them to a Christ who loves them with an eternal love, reaching souls, building lives. Finally, maybe the one that you think of that's most common in this directive, is, is our third one. And that one is bringing glory to God. Bringing glory to God. In Christian speak, if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, you've not been in church much, this is to glorify God. And to glorify God is simply to call attention to God's worth. That God is indeed a wonderful God, a great God, and to praise Him. 
So to glorify God is for us by how we live and how, how we speak. Sometimes we do it in singing. Sometimes we do it through prayer. We do all to glorify God, to say He is worthy. He is great, not us. He is the great God. Now we think of a verse, if we've been to camp anywhere, just about. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Doing all to the glory of God. Everything that we do is a platform to glorify God, to reach those who need to God, to, to show love for God and show love for other people. Now, we, we, this isn't everything. If, you want, if you're, you know, you're charting this here, so the third directive, but number one is everything. To glorify God in everything. Or maybe that's A for you, okay? It's everything. Now, that's really hard. I admit that. It's hard for me. Everything. Good, bad. Difficult. Stretching. Don't you like to be stretched? No, I don't either. I'm not talking muscle. I don't like to stretch muscle either. But to be stretched in my walk with God, that sanctification process sometimes puts us in places that hmm, we're uncomfortable. I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can do it. Sometimes it places us in, in places where there's lots of adversity. That's number two here. Lots of adversity. Philippians 1, 18 to 20, verse 20. Well, verse 18 says, What then? Only, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And this, in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and provision of the Spirit of Christ. Verse 20, though, according to my earnest expectations and hope, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Giving God the glory, calling out the wonder of God, the greatness of God, even in adversity. You and I are called to do that. That's the, that may be the very reason that God has allowed this in your life, in my life, that the why of my motivation is so that I will call glory to God and say He is wonderful, He is sustaining, He is gracious, even through a very difficult time in adversity. I can bring glory to Him. Now, I know what you're tempted, because I'm tempted to say, to say the same thing. It's like, well... Yeah, I know I can bring glory to God, but I have very little to give to God that's worthwhile. I have very little that God can use. So my glory, bringing glory to God is just a little bit, so why even bother? And I was reminded of a passage in 2 Kings. I'm going to tell you the story. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. 2 Kings. Um, this is Elisha the prophet. And in um, Elisha... There was a certain woman whose husband was one of the prophets. He died. And she went to Elisha and cried out. It says in verse 1, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now, this is not a, a condemnation on him. He didn't save enough or whatever. We don't, that, that's not the point, okay? He said, This lady is in dire straits. She has two children. She's in debt. Her husband's dead. She has no, no money he left behind. There's nothing for her to, 
to, to keep her children from being enslaved, to work out off the debt. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? What is it I could do? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except for a small jar of oil. Okay? Nothing in the house except for oil. Now, oil was used for a lot of things in cooking, in lamps. Okay? So you, you burn the, 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 great, the olive oil. Uh, I didn't bring one with me. You get a little lamp. You pour the, a little wick there, and you walk around there, and it smokes a lot, but you had light. Okay? You didn't flip a switch. That, that era. So I don't have anything but this. You know, it, probably the clothes on their back was all that was there. Probably all that she had were the clothes on their back and then a house empty with a small jar of oil. Okay, then he said to her, go borrow vessels uh, at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels, and do not get a few. He said, I want you to go borrow lots of vessels, small, large, but borrow lots of them. Okay, so she goes out. I mean, can you imagine this? <laughs> you go into the neighbor. Can I borrow your pot? Get any more? <laughs> any more after that? I'll clean them out. She does, and she comes back, and she has all these things that she borrowed, and she brings them back. And in verse 4, Elisha continues, And you shall go in and shut the door behind you, you and your sons, and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not one vessel more, and the oil stopped. And she came and told the man of God. He said, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. God made a lot out of her little I mean, she probably had a, just a small, just enough to hold over what was la- left over. You and I are tempted to say, I don't have much to offer God. And God is in the business of making a lot of, out of a little with a heart that is given to him. See, this, this account from the life of Elisha speaks of the greatness of God. Yes, you can say, Ancillary to the faith that this lady had to follow, Elisha. But it wasn't Elisha that stood there and said, let me make each pot. Okay, we have another pot to go. I hope we have enough. He said, go, close the door, you and your sons, pour it out. The hero of the story is God. See, the hero of our story is not us, it's God. The hero of the story of your life and my life is that God can do a work in us and He desires to bring glory to Himself by what He does through us and your little is enough for Him to use. He can make a lot out of your little. So we have no excuse to say, I only have a certain small talent. I only have a few pennies. God can do incredible things with your life. If you release it to him, bring glory to God in adversity and everything with your little. And finally, bring glory to God as you wait. Over and over, Psalm 40 is just a representative verse. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined unto me and heard my cry. Abraham waited 25 years before fulfilling God's calling on his life. 
And then he waited also a very long child, a time for a child. To the point where he was 100. Moses waited on the backside of the desert until God took him back to Egypt to lead Israelites out of captivity. Forty years he waited. Jesus himself waited 30 years before beginning his earthly ministry. Often we are in God's waiting room, as some have called it. We're waiting. But unlike the waiting room at the doctor's office, where there's hardly anything worthwhile that goes on, okay, you're just in the queue, you're in the line, and you're next, God does remarkable things for us in and through his waiting room. It, it is in these times that we can bring glory to him. It is in the times of waiting we can learn and grow in our sanctification to be more like Christ. In those times, we can experience the waiting, but trust, yet trust in God for his provision for us as we wait. Now, some of you are thinking that college is a waiting room. (laughs) Yeah, in a sense, but you can learn and grow. Some are saying, where I am, my job, or my home, or work, whatever, I'm kind of there, stuck. I'm waiting for that job. I'm waiting for the next step. What is it? I'll just coast until God brings it. And that is not the response to God's waiting room. The response is to trust Him, to, to grow in Him, to learn of Him. And while we're, we are there to bring glory to Him, that when people say, you're in a waiting room, I can tell. You're waiting for this. But, but God's doing a work in your heart. And you can say, yes, He is changing me from the inside out. I'm growing in ways that never would grow if I was to where I wanted to be, I'll get there by God's grace, but he's doing something now in me. And very briefly, we see that God's glory is that important. God's glory does wonderful things in our lives in adversity. While we have just a little, while we use everything that we have, and in every situation, even his glory can be exalted in us while we wait. And so we go back to our original question, what is the why? What motivates you to do what you do as a believer? Very simply, your why, your motivation, is your love for God. The choices you make must be for your love of God and for other people as as you share the gospel and the glory of Christ to others. See, it's your why that people look and say, he or she, is, they're doing something that is, that's unlike anybody else that I see around me. They may be experiencing things that I don't see anybody else experience, or maybe they're experiencing them in a way that is full of grace and full of trust in God. I don't know how they're doing that. What is it about Jesus that has changed them? I want to challenge you this morning. You may be in a waiting room. You may be even conflicted uh, conflicted about your why. And you may be tempted and you may already be supplying your own why. Well, I want this, so I will make this choice. I want this, I will go this direction And you've not let God's why, if you're a believer, you've not let God's why direct you. 
Maybe your why is fueled by ambitions that will never accomplish the work of Christ in your heart and in the world. And tragically, that's how a lot of believers live. Can I disabuse you the notion? And it's going to sound stark and, and dramatic. Can I disabuse you of the notion that life's about you? Life's about me. We live that way often. But if you're a follower of Christ, if truly Christ has done his work on the cross for you and his blood has saved you, you've received his grace through faith, and you're a child of God, things are radically different now. Your life is different. God has a, has a draw on your life that will not be denied. So he reaches and calls you. Sometimes it's through adversity. Sometimes it's through a million other ways that we use, but he calls you that your why will be his why. That because of your identity in Christ, you will live out your life, make your choices motivated by the great love of Christ in your heart, and all will see that Christ indeed is great and glorious. But it's for you to choose. Simon Sinek wrote this, what you do proves what you believe. Very simply, what you and I do, regardless of what we say, we believe. What we do proves what we believe. So I ask you again, your why. Do you live in such a way that you're motivated by the great glory of God the gospel of God and the love of God in your heart and the love of God for others around you. Can you say your why is wrapped up in Christ? What you do proves what you believe. Let's bow for prayer. Great God, I thank you for who you are and your Grace is overwhelming when we think about what you have sacrificed um, in such a way to bring us salvation. Oh God, I thank you for your great work. Father, for those of us who believe we can't hardly comprehend the love of Christ for us, that he loved us enough to come, very God coming to earth to live as man, to suffer, to endure everything that we would endure, yet he did not sin and all the temptation. And so he sacrificed himself on the cross. He gave himself willingly that he might be our perfect sacrifice. And so the debt of our sin will be completely covered. That is astounding love. So God, we who will are your children, may we be wrapped up in you. God, may we, by your grace and mercy, know our identity, who we are in you and in Christ, and then deeply examine, examine the motives of our lives that our why is, is properly motivated to glorify you. 
to love you, to love others, to share the gospel. Oh God, if there's a heart here today that's struggling with her why, would you bring to bear the Holy Spirit upon them the grace to make the right decision? Oh God, if there is hearts here today that do not know Jesus as their Savior, may they see the choice before them. May they see that a A wonderful God stands ready to cleanse them, to free them from their sin, to receive them into his family, and now into our family as believers. And that choice will be made before it's eternally too late. God, would you work at our invitation, call hearts by your grace to answer your leading and your prompting. It's in Christ and I pray.